This is Lunch Pail VC, presented by Bullpen Capital. Each week, host Randy Comisar and I, Paul Martino, go deep into the nuts and bolts of all aspects of the venture capital business. And no, we don't ice the kicker, but we do give you a no-bull look into the VC business. We talk with exceptional VCs about all sorts of topics, including deal sourcing, deal selection, selection of your fund size, just to name a few. Welcome back to another edition of Lunch Pail VC, where there is no fleece allowed. We give you the no bull look at the industry of venture capital. I'm one of your hosts, Paul Martino, managing partner at Bullpen Capital, along with my friend and partner in crime, Randy Komisar from Kleiner Perkins. Hey, Paul. It's great to be back for another episode. And we have quite a guest today, Keith Raboy of Founders Fund. He's a singular thinker and has led early stage investments at both Founders Fund and Coastal Ventures for some of today's most well-known startups like Stripe and DoorDash. I mean, he's a force of nature. Keith's been very prolific. Name me a major startup in Silicon Valley over the last 20 years, and there's a good chance Keith either invested in it, worked there, sat on the board. He is indeed one of the original PayPal Mafia members. Absolutely. I mean, he's clearly a five-tool player. I got that in, five-tool player, that can do it all. But uh, I'd say in the model of our old mentor, Bill Campbell, Keith is a great product picker. So today we're going to talk to him about his process of selecting companies. This will dovetail nicely with our last conversation on sourcing deals. We get to see all the interesting companies and founders pitch us every week, but choosing the winners... That's actually the part of the business very few people talk about. So with that, Keith, welcome to Lunch Pail VC. It's a pleasure to be with you both. Pleasure is ours. Yes, absolutely. When, when, when you get Keith checking in from Miami, you know it's a good day for your show. <laughs> absolutely. Right? Right? I'm sitting here in Look gray. At the sun behind you. Right. <laughs> like every day in Miami. I, I'm in the basement in Philadelphia because I might as well have those walls as opposed to the gray ones. But look, you grew up in New Jersey, so you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I, I escaped as soon as I was like legally able to. <laughs> <laughs> good for you, Keith. Keith, look, there's a huge set of factors on why people invest in a company. You want visionary founders, concrete plans, markets ripe for disruption, but ultimately sometimes there's no product. Um, sometimes it's just hype, sometimes it's just vision. Talk to us about what it's like to really pick a deal. What are some of your frameworks in your head for how you pick a winner? So I'm pretty narrow. So the formula that's worked for me is I'm basically a founder-driven investor, which means basically the only thing I'm trying to figure out is, is this founder capable of changing the world? through the process of building an iconic company. And that's the only thing that matters to me. There are different styles and different criteria that different investors use, but the formula for me is solely based upon the initial founder, founder and founding team. Yeah, so let me push on that a little bit real quick. I also have to give you some credit. Having sat on some boards with you in the past, you have outstanding product instincts as well. And so as much as I know that you are a founder-led investor, there is definitely a mind meld you can have with the product as well that I've seen you do. And I, and if you're saying that, you know what, that's all after I make the founder bet, that's actually quite interesting. I'd say 90% of the time, Paul, the feedback to the founder is post-investment and the ability to be insightful in different dimensions about hiring a product is one of the value adds and reasons why, you know, excellent founders might choose to work with me. But that's not the core of my initial decision-making. There are times when founders show you a product and you can tell from how the product is actually crafted 
that the founder is incredible. You see insights and craft that you don't normally see. And so that can be the case, but typically I'm investing in a keynote deck, in a founder, in a founding team, and there definitely isn't product and surely not metrics. One of the reasons why I like to do that is other investors don't really know what to do when there's no metrics. And so I feel like I'm not competing with anybody who's any, who's any good. Once there's <laughs> metrics, there's a lot of people who are pretty savvy about looking at metrics and a lot of the alpha sort of, so to speak, goes away. Uh, I mean, it's hard to get alpha empirically analyzing a startup, but I think from a team and keynote deck, very few people want to write million dollar checks regularly on just that basis. And I prefer to. Secondly, in terms of helping a founder you know, build a company, the earlier you get involved with the company, hopefully you can avoid some unnecessary mistakes with some feedback. Um, the grass is you know, usually not greener and there's like some Darwinistic evolution to how startups are built. And if I get involved very early, we can avoid some unnecessary mistakes, which increase the probabilities of success. Keith, I invest very similar to you, but I want you to help me with a scenario. A, a founder walks into the room and they're a successful founder. They've actually built a company in a very different industry than the one they're pitching to you. They walk in with the CEO of this company. They're not going to be the CEO. The CEO is their ceramics professor from uh, a university that the person attended, I don't know, a decade before. The entrepreneur who's doing the presentation, really his mind keeps slipping because he, he's thinking about getting on the airplane that he's got to get onto so he can pitch the opening pitch in Philadelphia. The presentation is about a business uh, where the product doesn't quite exist, but the IP does. Of course, the IP turns out to be in contention. And in fact, the university has lawyers now negotiating the uh, sale and or injunction of that uh, technology. And they want a valuation on this company that is, I don't know, 5x what you're seeing in every other deal walking through. When you ask them about the particular issues in a business like this, they don't seem to understand them very well. They've not researched them. They've not thought about them a lot. And so as much as you want to invest in that founder, you've got all these counterindications in that meeting, right? You ended up joining that company and running that company to great success. What did you see that I missed? <laughs> Honestly, I might have, I was not a venture investor when that company was being pitched and I might have missed it. I, I wouldn't say I would confidently have been right about that call. However, when I consider joining, when I reference that founder with people I trust, everybody universally wrote back to me and I ha still have these emails, uh, mostly were done by email actually, wrote back, the person's a visionary. And if the role for you is to do X, Y, and Z to compliment him, this could be really successful. If the role is not to do that, then you shouldn't do it. Yeah. That's what led to my decision to join Square. But I don't know that I would have made the right decision on the seed round in Square because the company raised $10 million, which is a fairly significant dose. So the risk reward on that investment is a little challenging for a seed investor. Co-founder is a very unique person. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, he also was smart enough to move to Miami before me, actually. So he's obviously quite good at what he does. Uh, but yeah, like I don't think that was a no-brainer investment at all. And especially, I had a lot of industry expertise. You know, it's basically the real-world version of PayPal. And I remembered enough of the challenges of building PayPal 
But I was able to isolate that the challenges really to building PayPal and or Square were twofold. One is, can you underwrite the risk of long-tail merchants successfully? Mm-hmm. And I, I knew enough about that to sort of quarterback how on or off target the team was or how naive or not they were. And then B, distribution, customer acquisition. Like long-tail merchants, you cannot spend a lot of money on because you don't generate a lot of revenue from an individual merchant. So you have to have a very clever customer acquisition strategy. So one thing that was true of that team was Jack had proven that he could establish a service basically globally at no marginal cost, Hmm. arguing that he could do it again because the proprietors of these businesses were more like consumers than businesses wasn't a stretch. It wasn't that crazy a stretch to believe that he could figure out a formula that would work economically because he'd proven he could scale service to billions of users. Well, you've made me feel a little better for missing it. I will say, to, to finish up the story of Square, I think we came back two rounds later. That's when I first Correct. met you. We had a great conversation. I was so impressed. At that point, it was clear to me that I could invest in you. You were the person I wanted to invest in. You were, the, you, you were to me, the founder. You got it. You understood where you were going. You were incredibly clear. And now that I think about this and ask you real time and watch your answer, I realize one of the differences between my not investing and your joining was that you knew you could actually make a difference. It's 100%. I give this advice to friends of mine who want to join companies as executives all the time is if you're betting on yourself, that's a great right. decision. So if the core needs for the company run through your skill set, you have a competitive advantage in making that decision and you should do it. If on the other hand, let's say this was a highly technical product that was like architecture of a new database, I can't do that. Right. And like the reality is I can't solve that problem if it's not working. And so that's the wrong risk for me to take, particularly at a very early stage as an executive. Keith, uh, let me talk to you a little bit about some different stages at which you've invested. Obviously, you you were a very prolific angel, which is, I think, where we met. I think we were angels together in Udemy, for example, a long time ago. And I remember that pitch sitting there with you at our old office on Sand Hill and thinking, look, these two guys are guys we're going to back, right? I mean, it was two people from Turkey. They were brand new, to some extent, even to the whole startup scene, but it just felt like they were on the right track. Now, you're also at Founders Fund and you've invested in later stage rounds, or at least been the board member, I guess, involved in later stage rounds. There, the cake is baked. Talk to us a little bit about kind of what it's like to be on a bigger platform like Founders Fund, when you sometimes need to then be drafted into the role of the board member, as opposed to kind of almost visionary alongside the founder seed stage stuff. From writing a check perspective, I think it's important to remember all the time what size check what round you're mm-hmm. contemplating, because you don't want to apply the same lens from a growth perspective into a seed round or vice versa. And I think that mistake is very challenging because in the same partner meeting, for example, you could be de- debating a $1 million seed check in a $300 million growth investment. Right. Yeah. And if you try to normalize and you don't do it well, you're going to apply the wrong lens and make the wrong decisions. And it's a very significant downside to being a multi-stage sort of fund that looks at all these investments back and forth, back and forth every hour on the hour. However, there's one big advantage, which is if I make a mistake and God forbid miss a seed round or an A round, there's a shot that we can still invest. <laughs> and if we, if we use that judiciously, you know, they can turn out well. So for example, I did lead a round, a series C round, which is pretty anomalous for me, into Stripe. I became you know, a VC in 2013, and the A and B round had been done, and so that was the first time I could inject myself. That wouldn't normally be what I want to do with my time, but I understood the market quite well. 
And so it felt like stretching um, into a kind of round that KV wouldn't normally do. In fact, I think when we co-led that round, it was about at a $1.2 billion valuation. I think by an order of magnitude, <laughs> it was the highest entry valuation in the history of KV at the time. You know, it's interesting. I saw the same dynamic at KP. I mean, we had terrific growth investors led by Mary Meeker, but their approach, of course, was data-driven. And the rest of us, the early stage investors, were more intuitive and founder-driven. And so what the problem was in those debates, when we're both in the same room, we're really talking past each other. I mean, you really can't have a really great conversation where you get to the heart of the matter when one group is looking for data and one group is talking intuition. It's very challenging. There was one round when I joined Founders Fund that was this kind of hybrid round where it wasn't quite a growth round and wasn't definitely wasn't a venture round given the size of the check and valuation. Now, fortunately, it was a company I was already involved in, so I thought I had significant asymmetric information about the team and the levers you know, at the company's disposal. My growth colleagues were barfing because the mm -hmm. metrics weren't quite where they needed to be, but I knew this was a very successful company. Like. A, I was basically like, I'm quitting if we don't do this round because it is like the no, biggest no-brainer like you know investment in my career, and so I could see in a normal case how challenging that conversation would have been. The only I had already been on the board for four years. Two, the two co-founders had worked for me for three years. Mm. I had more asymmetric information than you're ever going to see in your life. Yeah, um, I led the seed and co-led the A. But so I was like, like if I can't make this call correctly, I should be quitting right now. Like I'm quitting venture investing if I can't make this call correctly. Fortunately, yeah. the company's going to do well. So everybody now, like, trust my judgment. <laughs> you went into the partner meeting and said, I'm ready to quit. Or basically, that was your your, your point of view. Yep. yep. I think one of the mysteries of a lot of venture funds is what the voting mechanics look like and how those voting mechanics actually dictate how you enter a partner meeting. So, for example, Bullpen has a very odd model where there's no voting. Since we're only doing contrarian deals, you just need to stand up and explain why you're the one person dumb enough to want to do it. A very different <laughs> voting mechanism. To some extent, if you're doing contrarian deals, you've got to be kind of built that way because you can't use a consensus vote to go do contrarian deals. That's not going to work. So, so talk to me a little bit about maybe uh, you've been at both Founders Fund, KV, you've been an individual angel. Maybe a little bit about the dynamic of, of how the vote or the mechanism for yes works with you as a free agent or you as one person who gets to vote. Yeah, at Founders Fund, we have very explicit rules based upon the size of the check. So the number of partners that need to vote for something just varies. So sub, let's say 2 million, you know, maybe one person or two, two to 10, it might be a different number, 10 to 20, 50 plus. So, you know, it's just graded. graded. And then the person who's championing the investment will kind of shepherd around the company to get the necessary votes. Um, so that it's kind of a, you know, custom process based upon size of the check. At KD, we did have a numeric scoring system, but there was no magic number. It was just a way of collecting feedback from your colleagues. As a GP at KD, I could pretty much invest whenever I really wanted to. The question was how much social capital, like internal mm -hmm. capital, was I burning? Mm -hmm. And the scores were an indication of whether I should push <laughs> the envelope on valuation because there was a lot of enthusiasm. <laughs> or whether I was definitely, you know, putting my neck out a bit and I can still make the call. So I, every mistake I made at KB to not invest was my fault. Then no one ever told me I couldn't invest, mm -hmm. but I definitely knew there was more or less friction in particular cases. And I'd have to make a call about whether I should like lean in or lean back. And it was actually a good asset test, honestly. 
That's interesting. I've never heard of that model with almost like an adjusted Z-score to know how far out mm. on a ledge you are to dictate mm. almost, hey, Keith, here's how you're going to have to handle this discussion. <laughs> here's the scorecard. Mm. Yeah. I mean, for, for non-GPs, the scores were a little bit more decisive. But for any of the, the four or five GPs, it was clear that if you really wanted to invest, you could invest. And there were times when actually the feedback was more supportive than I expected. And it would cause me to lean in more aggressively, even though I was the sponsor who brought the company to, you know, to present. And there was times when it was you know, meaningfully worse and either maybe I would pull back my enthusiasm, maybe be more disciplined on price, or maybe just say, screw it, we're gonna do this anyway. Mm -hmm. Keith, with your track record now, I assume when you're sitting around with your younger partners in particular, your opinion matters a lot to them. Even if you've got a process that is flexible, to allow somebody to invest against the grain. When you've got somebody like yourself, or we did it with John Doerr or Vinod at Kleiner, we were all equals, but some were more equal than others. How do you personally manage that when you're in the room making decisions with your other partners? So I think it's a lot more like being an executive, which is you don't actually want to dictate the outcome because then you never figure out if your colleagues are actually good investors. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you ask them to just mirror you, all you figure out is whether they can mirror you. So there's a lot of times, very frequently, I will approve something that I would not do. But the only way to find out is whether, you know, colleagues here are good at what they do is to give them the license to do it. I will give them feedback almost always about like, I would or would not do this if I were you. But I won't always approve everything because otherwise I'm not actually doing my job. But I will tend to give people rope and say, I wouldn't do this, but mm. I'll support it. Do you think that they choke up on the bat when they think that you are not supportive of what they're going, where they're headed? Not here. If anything, <laughs> they should listen more often. <laughs> 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 we, we try to hire people here pretty self-confident and pretty uh, you know, self-sufficient. So I don't think they take feedback very well. <laughs> yeah. But then that's how you find out. Like if they're just mirroring whatever you know GP says to do, then yeah, you, maybe you can create scale that way, but you can't develop new investors that way. Yeah. No, that's that's exactly right. And look, the whole point of a partnership is your blind spot gets fixed by the next partner you hire. And if the next junior partner is just trying to be a mini version of you, you you've got the Keith Raboy box covered. Yeah, I mean, I'd, lo I'd love to scale myself, you know, for a lot of reasons. I mean, I won't be doing this forever, and, you know, we could do twice as many investments, et cetera. I serve on 18 boards. Like, there's a lot of reasons, like, that would be useful. But it doesn't add too much alpha to the fund, and the best thing we can do is find the next Vinode or find the next Peter, you know, et cetera. That is definitely the goal when we hire someone. So did you say 18 boards, by the way? Was, was that 18? I, I definitely am involved in a lot of boards. Um, good news and bad news, right? They're good, mostly very good companies, interesting companies, excellent entrepreneurs. So I get to see a lot, get involved a lot, have high impact, but it is consuming. And the, the biggest trade-off is the ability to find new, cool, interesting seed companies because those are a lot of, those require a lot of meetings and they require a lot of in-person meetings in my view. And when you're, you know, attending 18 board meetings, plus one-on-ones with CEOs, plus a, assessing interview and closing candidates for those companies, a lot of your calendar is pretty baked. 
Well, not only that, you're also founding companies while you're still at it. I mean, that is one hmm. of the questions I've hmm. had on this list. And obviously, it's one of the things I respect the most about you. You're not giving platitudes from a bygone era. You're still in the game, right? You're running companies. You're founding companies. How do you, obviously, you don't believe in work-life balance, which is part of it, that, which is good. <laughs> not no, not believing in it is, I think that's requisite for people listening to this podcast, step, yeah. right? So, so we're good on that, Keith. But, but that said, I mean, getting the work-work balance correct between <laughs> being the founder and being the venture board member coach, that's got to be tough. Yeah, I mean, there's a benefit, right? The synergy is, first of all, uh, you create a proprietary deal flow, which is always good. That's one of the reasons why we encourage people at Founders Fund to start companies. My colleague Delian has started Varda, Trey started Andorra. We we like to found companies here. So you do create unique opportunities that you don't have to compete for. And that's a really good reason. Second though, there are benefits of running something that you do remember things that you tend to forget as you age. For example, I'm currently running a company as CEO. I think on the engineering recruiting side, not being that close to the metal, it had been a while since I suffered through, you know, competing in a super hot market for engineers and having to actually do it and actually figure out a competitive differentiated strategy, figure out how to solve that, how to move people to Miami, et cetera. I had to dig in pretty deeply into the tactical stuff you forget as a board member that hadn't run a company in a long time. Well, so now when other companies are struggling with engineering recruiting, I have a lot of talking points and a lot of ideas that just you know popped to my brain because I've recently suffered through it. That's right. And this flavor of it, not the flavor from pick your prior peak that you were at where that story is actually not applicable anymore because in this world it's post-COVID and it's all different for these reasons. Yeah, things, things change, right? Different marketing tactics change, the environment of recruiting changes, the way you design the organization, all this stuff evolves. Um, being closer to the evolution when things do change does help you give you know better feedback to entrepreneurs. I mean, that's the primary role is the consigliere mentor you know, to entrepreneurs. And the sharper you are, obviously, the more insights you can provide, the more actionable the insights are. Great. Well, you mentioned recruiting to Miami. I can't not get through a podcast without asking you. I mean, you are the number one salesman and maybe the mayor for the city. <laughs> And being a big, you, you were you were a big San Francisco homer. I got to tell you, you were a very pro San Francisco guy, and are now a Miami guy. I'd love love to hear a little bit about what that transition's been like, and you know maybe maybe some lessons learned as as the ambassador for the city. Yeah, so I think it's about the same as starting about five companies. Instead of starting a new company, I decided to start a new city sort of thing. <laughs> it's similar. Inertia is not your friend, and you need to figure out techniques for overcoming inertia. And then you create a network effect and that becomes hopefully self-fulfilling. So that's what we aspire to do in Miami and it's working. I'd say we're like a series B company now. So <laughs> we've proven a lot, we have to scale in another five or 10 X, but we, we actually see line of sight to success, like a, a traditional series B. The beginning was difficult, um, but it started a company is incredibly difficult. Like nobody believes in you. It's pretty similar. Every tweet's like you're crazy. You know they don't believe in the idea, and you've got to you know figure out how to frame the value proposition, show that it resonates, and then scale and turn inertia and time into your friend. And I think that's where we are now. But so it didn't feel that different to me. It actually felt like starting a company, and the ten year time horizon actually felt very comfortable as a VC. Mm -hmm. Venture returns are basically measured on roughly a decade, you know, time scale. And so when I started the Miami project, I figured it would take about 10 years, but that felt like normal. Whereas when I was in my entrepreneurial days, 
10 years would have seemed like an eternity and it would have scared and terrified me. So it was one of the virtues of having been a VC was I was thinking in decade long doses and I thought that it would take that long. Now I think it actually take four to five years before Miami is super successful. But at the time it was like, this is a 10 year project. And why Miami? Exactly. That's what I was going to say. At the end of the day, you did pick Miami and you could have picked somewhere else. Yeah, we had a a couple simple criteria. It's actually surprisingly few. My family, my husband and I wanted warm weather. We wanted an international airport, which both both for personal and professional reasons. I wanted a Barry's workout program, which may sound silly, but was like important to me. And then last, we wanted some version of cosmopolitan cuisine and shopping and a reasonable tax rate, like Mm. defined as 4.5% or less from a state income tax. And so you just buy those four or five criteria. And in the U.S., you wind up in Miami. (laughs) You could argue maybe there's one other city that might qualify, but that's it. Like (laughs) United States is not, doesn't have as many cities and options as you might think intuitively. So then I, I hesitated for about a month to make sure that I was convinced that I could make it successful professionally, because I definitely didn't want to retire in I don't think my husband really wants me to retire because I don't think he wants me around the house critiquing everything all day long. Um, and so then the benefit of being a little bit older and, you know, having kind of watched Silicon Valley for a while was I had that perspective on what I felt the key ingredients to success in Silicon Valley were. I had had the benefit at the beginning of my career of working with a lot of people who'd actually built Silicon Valley. Like my first board that I ever joined was with Dick Kremlick and Pierre mm-hmm. Lamont. So I was able to absorb a lot early in my career. And then I've obviously read and studied everything that's been written and published about Silicon Valley. So I had a, had a sharp perspective in my brain about the right way to recreate Silicon Valley was. And so now you have been in the process of deploying it and seeing if it works. It's kind of like having your business plan back in the day or, you know, having your intellectual maze in the kind of modern, you know, parlance as an entrepreneur. The, the thing that's not obvious to me is the, the where's Stanford in, in Miami? So Randy, um, one of the diagnoses that I have and you know, my personal perspective was Stanford isn't very relevant in the history of Silicon Valley. Hmm. So I think it's incredibly overrated. Hmm. So in 1972, Stanford was not anywhere near the top 30 universities in the country. And the base of Silicon Valley was built somewhere between 1954 and 1983. Hmm. Uh, there's a great book you know, called uh, Trans, uh, oh my God, what's it? Leslie Berlin's book about the history oh, yeah. of Silicon Valley yeah. from 1969 to 1983, about the foundations of five industries that I think it's like Troublemakers or something like that as a title. But Stanford wasn't even relevant in the foundation of Silicon Valley. And then you can even argue whether it was outside search very relevant um, hmm. at all either. But most of the companies that built in Silicon Valley actually have been importing people from elsewhere. Apple had local resonance, but most of the other companies, if you look at like who the founders were, where they came from, they weren't born and raised in Silicon Valley. And the core team wasn't born and raised in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. It's a total myth. So I like to move people to Miami, make Miami a magnet for talent, maybe across the globe. It's actually easy from Latin America and Europe and maybe Israel to move people here as well as the United States. And I think that's more important. So the history, in my view, the history of Silicon Valley was predicated on a unique set of uh, risk reward capitalists, Mm. all co-located. Sand Hill Road, as you know, used to be the most boring place on the planet. Drab office parks. There's no reason anybody would ever go to Sand Hill Road except... There's a concentration of investors with a different risk reward appetite that you could find anywhere else at scale on the globe. And so entrepreneurs from anywhere would want to track to Sand Hill Road. And so that's what we started with in Miami. We're gonna put the best investors here 
angel, seed, and venture capitalists. And entrepreneurs will move here and come here because the best investors are here. Hmm. Real quick, what are some of the KPIs for the Series C round hmm. of Miami, right? I think Randy's criticism around Stanford is part of a broader one that there's not the base of the tech talent. But what are some of those KPIs for the Series C? Hmm. Yeah, so we need, we need successful companies. At the end of the day, to create an ecosystem, you need $10 billion plus companies for lots of reasons. One, it proves you can do it. Number two, the people that create the next generation of companies are often younger entrepreneur, younger uh, individual contributors that have aspirations and dreams of building their own company. So they leave a company like Square and they start their own company. And then that company generates new entrepreneurs. And that's how you have decades of innovation. So we need successful companies here where people move here and then they go found their own company, proto entrepreneurs that want to build their own company. And if they like Miami, if they enjoy Miami, if their family enjoys Miami, they're going to build their next company here. Right. And so that's what I need is three, four very successful companies where they hire aspirational entrepreneurs. And those entrepreneurs will build their companies disproportionately in Miami. Secondly, we need VCs. Um, so it's easy to move angel investors here. They're like the most mobile people on the planet. <laughs> There's a lot of advantages to Miami to angel investors. So that was easy to get them to move here. Uh, but I cherry picked, you know, several selected ones and like encouraged them by hand to move here. I published something counterintuitive when I first moved here that one of the key KPIs was I wanted five traditional VCs to open offices here. And a lot of people reacted and said, well, why do you want all your competitors there? The hmm. reason was I wanted critical density of talent and right. venture to be here because that would propel entrepreneurs to want to come here. And so that's another KPI is, are we moving more and more venture firms here? And it nets out, it shows in dollars invested, like a, an output metric would be dollars invested in Florida or Miami, which has been growing, you know, at very high rates. I think in, in our internal founders fund and, you know, data is in the last fund. So the fund we're just finishing, like roughly a three year cycle, we invested 24% of our dollars in the Bay Area. We invested nine to 10% in Miami, hmm. which is pretty amazing given that I only moved here halfway through that fund. So if you look at those trend lines, I think it's very possible the next fund that will be equal in dollars, Miami versus the entire Bay Area. And, and do you think about building these companies as clusters? I mean, you've talked about the idea of these, of, of getting people, experts in these companies that then move out and create their own businesses. Does that mean that you need to focus your attention on two or three industries that you hope can create clusters that will be comfortable in Miami, or do you cast a wider net? Well, generally, I'm pretty horizontal because being a founder-driven investor, I don't have the luxury of like choosing sectors. Um, you know, I'm trying to find extraordinary founders and extraordinary founders have very different interests in the world. Mm. So I don't think I'm the right person to kind of propel a, a you know, a vertical strategy because mm. it's not how I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, by the way, I got one side question. The last time I caught you in Miami, you said something that really sticks in my head about the difference between San Francisco and Miami. You said something about when somebody recognizes you on the street, how they respond to you versus when they used to recognize you on the street in San Francisco. Would you mind telling that anecdote to the audience? Because I think it's quite profound, Keith. Well, let me abstract from it. One of the most invigorating things about Miami is that people in Miami uh, in all walks of life, any field, you know, any demographic are basically emulating success. So when you have kids in Miami, you want to teach your kids that 
you want to be successful. And the way you do that is you emulate successful people. So if you want a successful musician, artist, you want a successful athlete, you want a successful entrepreneur, you want a successful real estate investor, you should aspire to be successful and you should emulate people. San Francisco is all cynical and critical. It's mm. like the people are like somehow zero sum. And so people don't have that aspirational mentality. It's one of the reasons why people sometimes critique the culture here where people drive fancy cars, wear fancy watches. It's because they want to be perceived to be successful because the whole culture is predicated on everybody should try and aspire to be successful, mm -hmm. which I think is a very healthy dynamic. People are just generally happy, which is very important. Happiness is contagious. You can prove that research-wise. And so uh, the thing I did discover that I didn't really know in advance would be easy about moving people here is the happiness is very transparent and obvious. Everywhere you go, it's apparent. You can't fake it at scale. So you go to a coffee shop, people are happy. You go to a gym, people are happy. You go to a restaurant, people are happy. You walk down the street, people are happy. And that makes other people want to be happy too. And that's a very healthy thing. People are happier, succeed. People are happier, live longer. These are like the ingredients to success in life. Keith, I want to bring us back to Pickin though. You came to Stanford, you studied politics and law, you've not been afraid to get involved in, in the intersection of some of that stuff. One of my most famous investments was FanDuel and everybody said no to it when I did it because they were worried about the regulatory environment. Quite frankly, I got that deal because everybody else was scared that daily fantasy would get regulated out of existence. We're talking to you literally the week that Elon Musk bought Twitter. Now, we know this episode will come out a long time from now, it'll be a couple months from now till we're up there. But we'd be remiss not to ask you about investing in stuff that now has legal and regulatory risk, the way that the government is now involved in oversight on these things. This is now part of our business, whereas it was a no-fly zone even a decade ago when I did FanDuel, only I was the dumb guy who would go into that business. Love your thoughts on how regulation, regulatory, what's going on with Twitter, how that's affecting selecting in our business. Yeah, I mean, I've always embraced the idea, having been an ex-lawyer, that areas that would be most interesting for me to invest have some degree of regulatory risk or legal risk because I can triangulate that myself and don't have to rely upon this black box of outside counsel. And so it's not accidental that some of the areas I've had the best success in were infused with a lot of law or legal risk and regulatory risk, like financial services, YouTube had that on steroids. Um, I did all the legal diligence myself, actually, both as an angel investor and on behalf of the company when Sequoia was investing. So I, I actually got 90% of it right and sort of screwed up a little bit about music rights. But it, so even though I'm a founder-driven investor, if I can find a space that I think I can understand the risk reward better than other people, that leads me to lean in and to want to embrace the opportunity. Anytime you can take advantage of your own unique skills in most VCs are not ex-lawyers. There is some alpha there if I can find something where there's a great founder and he or she's confronting legal risk that most people won't be able to calibrate. You know, when we were doing green investing, I think we completely underestimated the regulatory risks. I mean, we, and we were so binary and they were so hotly political in a time when politics was changing radically during the Obama administration. We didn't give them enough credence. I've, I came away from that pretty scarred, feeling like regulatory risk was something that it was the third rail because it was so binary and it was so arbitrary. Yeah, so there's places where it's, where it may still be arbitrary, but it's less binary. So for example, if you have a state-by-state -state legal risk, it's not gonna be yes. binary. Right. So for right. example, like, you know, Uber, things like right. that, you know, fortunately have different risks in different states, in different cities even. And so that's actually a safer place to innovate. 
then when there's one size fits all regulator that can completely you know eliminate what you do there's another company i invested in recently in the crypto space where there's some very fine legal judgments you need to make a call about both at the product level and just generally as a business yeah, no, it's interesting. Uh, look, Keith, I'm not at all surprised that you're not afraid to go into the categories with legal and regulatory risk. I think the rest of our industry is starting to realize that having unique knowledge in that space is actually barrier to entry. It's actually barrier to capital. I mean, the companies that I invest in that I have the hardest downstream risks with are ones where the, the, the next round more financial investors don't have the level of understanding of how this is going to play out. Now, you could be wrong, but you could also have a pretty damn good roadmap for what the regulation is going to look like. And they're just, nope, nope, scared, scared, scared. Sorry, can't do it. Yeah, you want to be able to calibrate it, right? You're not going to be perfect. You don't want to be zero defects at a seed or a series A anyway. But fundamentally, being able to calibrate the exposure, like what's the probability that you can land this plane, this product within, you know, a legal box that can be sustainable. And if you can do that better than other people or not be terrified or not immediately allergic, there's a lot of alpha there as an investor. It's like a metaphor I use that's pretty approachable. Just imagine you went to med school mm. and you go to your doctor and mm. your doctor tells you this is what's wrong with you and this is what you should do. You can ask a lot sharper questions um, to probe because medicine like law is a lot of art, not just science. And the more educated you are, the better care you can get because you can ask better questions. So having a legal background does help you manipulate the lawyers to give you more refined answers than you would get as a general purpose person. So let me follow up on that because and you, you alluded to this a little bit when you were talking about YouTube and music rights. So Spotify comes in. I, I had been in the music business before that. I'd been a promoter. I had done a couple of music startups. And the one thing I knew was that the labels were really difficult to work with around licensing. The publishers had a whole different publishing licensing model. And more importantly, that when the publishers would ultimately give you a license, they would then continually up the license fees until they were absorbing all of the gross margin. So Spotify comes in. They're doing quite well. They're doing quite well in Scandinavia. They're doing well in Europe. They want to be in the U.S. They need the music rights to be in the U.S. You're looking at what the rights that they think they need. They want to mimic the rights they've got in Europe. And you look around and your experience tells you, this is freaking hard. And if they get it, there's a good chance that their business model will get stuck giving up all that margin to the publishers over time as they get ground down. So how do you keep your experience and your knowledge from being your enemy in a deal like that? So I think this is the hardest part of venture. Experience is not always your friend. I actually yeah. find I make the wrong decision or instinctively sometimes want to make the wrong decision in areas I know the most about because I remember all the pain. So like right. we talked about Square briefly, but I remembered a lot of the pain to build in PayPal. And that was a negative in some ways when I looked at Square and Stripe because I remembered how annoying these problems were and these people and these entities were going to be. Um, so sometimes a, na a naive can be useful. That said, Naiveness has its own dangers. Mm -hmm. For example, um, one of my friends who invested in YouTube said, you know, if I'd known how annoying the content owners would be, I never would have invested. <laughs> so it's both good and bad. Um, so you do get better at some parts of adventure over time, but you get worse because you have all the scar tissue of pain. Right. And you have to remember that there may be an angle. You know, the person I've seen who I compete with or used to compete with that somehow knows how to do this the best is Mike Moritz. Hmm. He likes takes advantage of scar tissue 
Hmm. and then makes another bet in the same area and it seems to work really well like so hmm. you know best in paypal came back at it with stripe with a very aggressive uh series seed in a um and so it wasn't terrified you know obviously in search did the same thing arguably with instacart did the same thing so he somehow can take advantage of the experience without getting you know too terrified and knowing when he's found the right founders again yeah so let me ask you a question about that. A lot of people describe Moritz as much more of a market picker, maybe in this taxonomy. Is it because he always liked that market and now finally has his chance to be right about it? Is, is that a possible thesis on why he's not afraid to go after that same category the second time when he lost the money the first time? Well, I think he's certainly seen the dynamics of a market and he's very savvy. You know, the journalist instinct kicks in and he's very observant, but he's a founder-driven investor. By a lot. I mean, I think he's the best founder-driven investor I've ever seen. Um, the calls on, like, you read the history of why he invested in Google, written at the time, not with hindsight. You know, he said, like, Larry and Sergey were the two smartest people I've ever met. And he said that at the time. So, like, he knew what he was tapping into. When he invested in Stripe, Patrick and John basically had nothing but a seed deck and an idea and maybe some a couple lines of code sort of thing. Pulling the trigger on that and giving them double-digit millions is one of the most impressive reads of founders <laughs> ever. Mm. That is outstanding insight. Keith, and one of the things that you hit on that we're going to double back on as we talked about some of this regulatory stuff is you're picking the people early stage. And you're also essentially making a statement about yourself because it's a company that you feel that you can add value to. It sounds like that's the, that's the buy box for you founder that you fall in love with and one that you can actually know that you can help. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that, that definitely is like the home run, you know, sort of like no brainer, must pull the trigger, must invest, must, must close. I will definitely be happy to invest in companies where I'm sure the founder is the right founder and I don't have to do anything. Hmm. <laughs> I don't think there's enough to deploy a billion dollar fund into just that. <laughs> I uh, wish it would certainly be easier to be on 18 boards if that were the case. Right. That's the case. Well, any other final thoughts on picking, Keith? And, and, and any anecdotes you can give us maybe about a time where you really made a hard call, where, where either right or wrong, and, and you learned something about your own picking criteria? Well, the hard, one of the hardest calls ever was you to me, actually, because they were down to the last like two weeks to three weeks of existence, and they kind of shut it down, and nobody wanted to invest at all. And finally, Goggin, you know, called me up and said, like, look, I don't have any other shot. Like, if you don't, if you don't do this, like, no one's going to do it. And I don't know, something resonated with me. And I was just like, okay, let's just do this. And then we were able to parlay that into raising a, a lot more money. But it was all, like, last-minute intuition on that one. Obviously, the company's done phenomenally well. But um, if we were able to parlay, though, my yes in my connections into a reasonable size round because as an angel, you typically need to you know get other people to support you. But for me, it's usually some spidey sense. Every founder that's exceptional has something where they spike on. And it can be very different. Like they can be really uh, super sharp. They can be super tenacious. They can be uh, incredible at sales, marketing, framing, storytelling. It's different. But every time I've made the right decision, my ear perked and said, oh my God, I've never seen anything like that before. Mm. And if I don't feel that, I typically don't want to invest in the seed because 
the people who change the world, like it's so almost irrational to wake up one morning and say, I'm gonna change the planet. I'm gonna change this industry. I'm gonna completely reinvent it with my college buddy in a garage somewhere. And so unless you have some skill that's top one basis point, top 10 basis points, the chance you're gonna really reinvent the planet like rounds to zero. So I'd rather not invest. But when I see something where there's at least one dimension that is the best I've ever seen, that's usually a good signal to invest. Let me let me ask a, maybe a final question here. You, you don't sound like a guy who spends a lot of time dwelling on mistakes. How do you think about and, and how much thought do you give to the deals you missed or the deals that you shouldn't have done? And what can you learn from them? I mean, you've said so many profound things about how history doesn't repeat itself, how you need to get beyond your scar tissue, how you have to really sort of buy into the, the leadership of a particular entrepreneur. What do you make of your past successes and failures as you think about the future? I sort them into two categories that are very different. On things I shouldn't have invested in, I almost never think about them. Mm. That's part of the job. It's like, I'd like to hit about 40% correct. Uh, but if I'm not wrong, like I'm not, definitely not taking enough risk. Right. And that's what I get paid for is like investing and you know being right, but not being zero defect at all. On things that I should have invested in that I made a mistake on, I lose sleep for years. <laughs> like there's one company specifically that I had a signed term sheet to lead the seed round, 2 million, 20 posts that's now a public company. We had a walk because they asked me to join the board and mm. back in my KV days, we were pretty allergic to joining boards at Seed for lots of good reasons. And there was not a lot of support for me joining this board. So we parted ways and that company would have returned billions of dollars. And so mm. I spent two years like not sleeping because mm. I knew like I'd actually screwed that up really badly. That said, two years later, another company with a very similar characteristic comes by seed round, we're investing like 2 million and 22 posts. And they required me to join the board. And this time I said, you know what? We're joining the board. I didn't even tell my partner or something. We're going to say mistake twice. Yeah. Lesson learned. Uh, maybe they still know I joined the board, but uh, they're probably pretty happy with the returns because this is like a hundred billion dollar company. <laughs> but I was like, I'm going to make another mistake, but I'm definitely not making that mistake. A <laughs> yeah. hundred billion will bail you out a couple times on some other bad yeah. ones. Yeah, well, it's a twelve billion dollar company currently, and it's still got a lot of room to run. <laughs> and like, I, I would definitely have not been able to lead that seed if I didn't say yes to the board. That's awesome. Well, Keith, listen, we can't thank you enough. Thanks for your stories about Miami. Thanks for talking to us about your selection criteria. We're really thrilled to have had you on Lunchpail VC. And great for uh, Randy to kind of see how many hints he had to give you on that square story to kick it all off. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you for hosting me. What a great pleasure to speak with you, Keith. Good luck to you. Pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Lunchbell VC was created by Randy Komisar and me, Paul Martino. It was produced by the great team at Edit Audio. If you want to follow more of our guest's journey, check out the show notes. And if you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a review and tell your budding VC friends to listen to us. They might actually learn something. Again, I'm Paul Martino, and on behalf of Randy Komisar, see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>